You're listening to Mastering Retention, presented by UserWise. Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of the Mastering Retention podcast. I'm your host, Tom Heyman, co-founder of UserWise. Uh, today, I'm really excited to be joined by Stanislav Stankovic, uh, who is a creative director at uh, EA. Um, if you guys haven't read any of his articles on Medium, we're definitely going to link some of them, and they are just Brilliant. I, I, I love your mind, and I hope we can share a lot of that uh, interesting thoughts and knowledge. Um, but yeah, definitely make sure that you follow his articles. He's got great insights, and I uh, just want to thank you again for joining us on here and, and also you know sharing that information with the community at large. I think it's just wonderful to see that. And I, I love the willingness in the gaming community that we do have to just share lessons learned and, and thoughts and things and just kind of all make better games together. So, Stanislav. Uh, Usually what I like to do with most guests is to just kind of say, how did you get here? Like, how, how'd you get into games? Like, you know, what's your story that led to today? Yeah, first of all, I'm really flattered to hear the, the, these comments about my articles. I'm, I'm really glad. And I'm also really excited to be on, 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 on your podcast today. As for how did I get here? Well, I was one, always one of those kids that kind of always wanted to make games. Like, I grew up in, in, in the 80s. I'm an 80s kid. And the first video game that I saw, I think my uncle borrowed one of the 8-bit systems from some of his friends. I immediately fell in love, and then I immediately wanted to make games. Now, I was really lucky to, to have a, a very supportive parents. They were both uh, professors at the computer science school, actually. So uh, I'm, I'm this rare, rare, rare guy that my mom taught me how to code for, for first time and, and that sort of, sort of thing. So... I was playing games like crazy when I was a kid, uh, mainly PC stuff, and I always wanted to make games. So basically, I was doing this as a hobby for, for a very long time. I went to, to computer science school because it was the, the best school in town. I'm originally from Serbia. So Serbia in the 90s, when, I, when it was kind of like a time to jump into industry, really wasn't a good place for starting anything because it was the, the, the troubled days. So I just continued my studies because I was reasonably good, good at them. I went abroad after finishing computer science to, to first Switzerland a little while and then to, to Finland when I did my, my postgrad studies, actually. But I was still doing games all the time as a hobby. Then Robio was opening a studio, actually, in the town where I was living. It's called Tampere. It's a little bit north of Helsinki, where I live now. They opened the studio, and I just sent... Uh, sent my CV and uh, a link to some of my games that, that there were flash games at that time online. Mm-hmm. And um, it didn't have an opening for the game designer at that moment. They just sent it as an open application and kind of sent a cover letter. And I don't know, I think that I was just, just lucky that they recognized something in, in me. So I got a job as a game designer there. I stayed with them for, for two and a half years. And then I shifted to Helsinki to Truck twenty uh, two years office where I am where I am now. Awesome, lots well, of a, a great story and yeah, <laughs> I think for anyone that uh, isn't in games and is thinking about it, I think that just goes to prove the the power of you know having a portfolio and, and building games you know on the side and such. I think that can tell a really you know great story about what you're capable of doing. Um, 
So that's really great. You know, as you were talking about your mom, like, you know, being supportive of computer science and gaming and stuff, I think back and I never asked my dad for like an Atari or like our first Nintendo and stuff. And now as a father, I'm like, oh, I bet he bought those mostly for himself. And then, you know, said they're for the kids. <laughs> but either way, I'm, I'm glad he did. It definitely uh, <laughs> planted some seeds in, in my mind there, too. But that's great. So, um, Stannis, I'm just going to ask you, let's say, you know, you and me decide we're going to start a new gaming company today. Um, built the team, like we're, we're ready to get going, but like, what is the thing that you would do first? Like, okay, we need to like make our, our first game, you know, how would you approach that? Oh, starting a new game. Well, that's a hard one because yeah. like, there's so many ways how, how to go about <laughs> it. And um, usually, I mean, uh, what I, how I like think about that stuff is that but every game needs to have a purpose for existence. Like you need to, 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 to find an audience or think about the, 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 the audience or the people that would kind of be delighted by that game. So you, you, I will start, start from, from that end and try to, to think about how, uh, how, how do we go about it. Usually there's, in the mind of every kind of game designer, there's all kinds of ideas and, and ideas for, for, for mechanics and gameplay and whatnot that you try to, to, to somehow make it work as a, as a product. So my approach is kind of try to, to, to combine those two things. So go back to your, your bag of ideas and, and, and tricks and see what would be compelling for, for, for an audience or, or, or a type of players that, uh, that go there. And then depends on what kind of a game we would be making, like especially our free-to-play mobile titles. So in that case, I mean, the, the requirements are a little bit stricter. So you would like to have a type of core gameplay that could support everything else that goes into making a solid free-to-play mobile game. Basically, you can, uh, can sustain retention of players there. So that kind of little bit narrows the, the, the possible patterns. Because premium games are a little bit more forgiving. You could have a compelling game that's a finished product and a finished package uh, that doesn't really kind of support for, for uh, gameplay that lasts for months or for years. But it's just mm-hmm. a delightful package. It has a couple of hours of gameplay and, and, and that's, that's, that's fine. For, for uh, this other type, for the, the, the free-to-play meta games, uh, free, free-to-play mobile games, you need a little bit kind of more more refined uh, the core gameplay, but this kind of minute to minute interaction is where everything begins. So this needs to be captivating for for, for players enough, yet be versatile enough to sustain a big uh, big sort of, of meta loops. So starting off would be start off with an idea or preferably more than one of them. And the very important thing is the ideas that, that you can tweak. So it's not something that kind of can work only in one package, but it has elements that you can play around with and kind of adjust. So that you pretty much start building your prototypes and tweaking and experimenting and just letting it evolve mm-hmm. till you were happy with it to a certain degree. And then we could try starting talking about like um, 
how would that fit in some some uh, typical meta game pattern or, or even experimenting with meta meta game. Yeah. So kind of going from a concept to an idea and into a prototype, iterating all, all along in, in this process. Yeah. So do you think it's better to take like a, a game idea that you have in your head and then try to say, okay, I think this is going to work well with this audience and go out to them. Or do you think it's better for you to say, I want to make a better kind of match three game or something like that and trying to go to either Candy Crush players or people that turned out a Candy Crush to like understand like, why did you quit and then like try to figure out some ideas based on their problems like or or could either of those approaches work uh, i don't think that there's a clear cut between those two things <laughs> the ideas don't really happen in vacuum most most of the ideas that, that that come along are something that is already tweaking of something existing or a combination of elements sort of like that it's totally that the idea is kind of hey there, there was this cool game I played it for a while but I turned because of X Y or something like that or did, I saw this cool concept but it was kind of lacking this and this so let's try to do the the the, the twist on there's the also typical uh, brainstorming exercise uh, game designer exercise where you kind of combine you know make a match three with zombies or make a match three with card collection or uh, where you combine either a general and a gameplay mechanic or just two totally random notions from the, the, the game designer vocabulary and try to, to work around around that. Uh, so I don't think that in, in reality the case is so clear-cut, like this is an improvement of an existing concept versus this is totally out of the, out of the blue, blue concept. It usually is a, a, a big ball of uh, uh, mix of, of new, slightly tweaked and, and familiar, which is also great because players also need something to recognize, but they also need uh, some stuff that, that will surprise them as well. Mm-hmm. And where it's, uh, well, what's exactly is the mix depends on your appetite of taking a risk to the product, basically with the game that you are making. But otherwise it's, it's kind of always a big, big mix of, of things. But mm-hmm. games are this great that you can kind of uh, remix and 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 renew and refresh the previous concepts, which is not entirely possible in other kind of media. Yeah. Do you think that um, there is a good approach to introducing like? new concepts or new gameplay mechanics and things like that, you know, such that well, maybe one of the best examples I've seen lately is uh, Royal Match. Um, I am fascinated by that game. Don't really know why, um, but I, I keep playing it. <laughs> I don't even really like match threes, but I keep playing that game. Um, but in there, uh, basically every 20 levels, maybe 10 levels early on, but eventually gets to like every 20. Um, you like go to a new room, you finish decorating it. But at that like 21st level, they introduce some new mechanics. And so it's usually pretty easy on that like new mechanic level. And then the level after it or a couple levels after it, they give you like just, you, you can have fun with the mechanic and you get to see like how you can blow everything up and do all this stuff. 
And then you get some levels that are like the hard versions of that. And you're like, oh, so this is how it can actually make it like pretty challenging. But after you go through all those different steps, you see how it's fun, you see how it's challenging, you beat that like 19th level and you kind of feel like you're a master at that, you know, new mechanic or something. Then you get your free bonus, you know, your congrats, good job thing on level 20. And then you hit 21 again and they give you some new mechanic. You kind of go through that cycle again. Um, and it's like, you always, you have this feeling that like, there's always something new in this game for you to learn and to master. Um, do you think that is important to have those sorts of feelings in a mobile game and what sort of like time frame should you actually have between those things so that players, I think, you know, once you feel like you've completely kind of mastered the game or you've played all that there is to it, I feel like it's much easier to have that boredom set in and ultimately lead to like player churn. Absolutely. I mean, I think that this is essential for, for actually having a live service that, that, that runs for years. Because if you are not refreshing or not revisiting the core mechanic of the game, um, sooner or later players players will get, will get, uh, get bored with this. And if you think about it, it's kind of like a typical player journey. So if you can do it gradually enough, then you are following that kind of trajectory. So first it's kind of onboarding and introduction. Then it's the it's the moment that the routine system are established and the player kind of knows the controls and kind of has his own, finds his own play style, plays in the game and so on. And then there's a mastery level. But at that point, when you get players to that level, you want to basically keep them occupied in that energy. So you you, you need sooner or later to, to re, re, refresh basically the, the mechanics. They are learning all the time. And this is one of the, of the key psychological needs. That we, we want to have a, a, a sense of competence. And something that's kind of really built in into, into a sense of competence is the sense that our skills are improved. And this is typical learning curve. So sooner or later, no matter what you're doing and how talented you are, this is going to plateau. So players, at that point, the boredom starts to, to, to set in, basically. So you, you, you have your routine and there's and it becomes a, a chore. So you would like to, to, to basically face something new. And as a game designer, what should, you should be doing at that time is somehow revisiting the, the core rules or kind of motivating the player to move out of his comfort zone or his routine and having to relearn uh, the stuff that he does. And in the games that I, uh, that I was making, uh, this is something that we try to do. We try to introduce something essentially new in the gameplay or introduce one big pillar of the, of the game, uh, new kind of uh, approach to the gameplay uh, in regular intervals. Now, what's the cadence? That, of course, depends on the kind of the game that you are making. So it could be, I mean, every couple of months or once a year, depending on how much you, you, you can do. Uh, probably doing it too often is not really good because you don't you know, leave enough time for the really engaged players to, to learn about your game and kind of establish the new routines. Uh, but doing it every every couple of months is, is, is hugely beneficial. And the whole idea is that you push players to, to, to learn new skills. And that's extremely rewarding to them. Now, what's paradoxical is that usually the players that are really feeling 
or seeing themselves as the masters of the game, they'll most probably uh, voice their protests when faced with the new rule set. And that's kind of funny because it actually means, okay, I see that you are providing a new challenge. I'm ready to step up to this new challenge. They articulate it in a perhaps a, a negative language, but usually you see them uh, start to renew the engagement and kind of face. And you see the, the first people that started protesting are also kind of quite often the first people that would start posting articles about how to do this new thing mm-hmm. properly or how to to to, to figure it out uh, or. or Kind of again showing off the mastery of, of this new new set of rules, and as and probably the most most um, engaging features that, that I ever designed were the ones that uh, had enough depth so that we could play with the rules, so that we could kind of deliberately uh, nudge the players into to this new direction of kind of like um, uh, having new new style of gameplay, or basically just uh, forcing them to rethink their rule book in a way or how they they, they approach the, the game. And that's that, that's a very powerful tool. If you if you can get to that point, that's that's really nice. Yeah. So you've got a, a few articles on the uh Fatui or the first time user experience that I find particularly interesting. And one of you I think the the first one, uh, you actually talk about self-determination theory, uh, which is interesting because I actually had a uh, a talk with uh, Iron Source's Level Up Conference on the psychology of monetization, I also referenced that and the importance of it in there. So great minds think alike, I guess. Um, but anyways, in that psychological model, it talks about the importance of autonomy, competence, and relatedness. Um, so obviously those apply, you know, really importantly in that like first time user experience, like those first 10 minutes are just so crucial and stuff. But if I'm adding a feature, you know, something that's not going to show up for two weeks or like a month or two of gameplay, you know, something kind of far along, um, does this principle still apply? Should I still be thinking in this sort of like first time user experience towards like new features and things like that too? Or is should I shift my mindset a little bit for like more engaged players? I mean, the players are more engaged. Uh, uh, introducing a new feature is still, especially in the big ones, the, the, the ones that kind of uh, uh, essentially change the, power, the, the way how the games play. It's essentially like introducing a mini game. So they always have this, and they will always have this moment when they're for the first time facing uh, something new. So in essence, you, you still have the first-time user experience, but for that particular feature. So it kind of goes through through similar set of, of steps, and you really have to be thinking about that in that in that way. Uh, if, I, uh, if I am a new player player facing this feature for the first time, uh, what is what am I going to see? How is my uh, thought process or emotional journey going to to, to go through this and, and so on? So this is essentially again when you're introducing the features. Now your players. So there's this part when designing a, a, a first-time user experience for anything, where you at the beginning kind of need to lean in into, into mental model of a person that's approaching whatever you are designing. And in the case of a game, mental model uh, before players see, see this are coming usually totally from outside of the game. 
So the mental model of the player, she has when they're they already engaged in the game, but they're seeing a new, a new feature, uh, is going to be very much formed by what they know about the game, their own play style before that and suddenly. So in that sense, it's a little bit more forgiving because you can get away with more complex stuff in, in, in that part. You don't have to explain everything or, or you can let it, them just figure it out based on the, on the uh, st- stuff that you already established elsewhere in the game. Uh, but you still, it's still going to be a first time with your experience for a particular, particular future. And mm-hmm. we work, uh, we, we always kind of like dedicate a big chunk of our time or kind of trying to figure, figure that one out. We don't do uh, uh, always a good job as we would like to, but we still try to. Yeah. Yeah, that's super interesting. You know, thinking about first-time user experiences and new gameplay, soft launches and things, I, I think something that pretty much every studio is struggling with these days is how do I, you know, launch a game that is so much more fun than whatever this player has already sunk time, energy, and money into that they're willing to abandon that to come play my game? And I think that keeps getting harder and harder uh, because, well, <laughs> games and especially the top games keep getting better. And so it's harder to, you know, steal people away. They're, they're fighting against you, um, and which is why I see more really honestly solid looking games getting soft launched and then ultimately killed because they just can't compete from, you know, different metrics and things. Um, but I, I would be curious. Um, I had an interesting question, uh, recently I was talking to a game studio and they've got a, a game. It's a pretty fun game and it's got like 30% day one retention. And so, you know, they kind of go, well, by industry standards, we probably should kill this game and move on and take the learnings that we've had. But I don't feel like I've actually learned that much. Like I don't really know what is missing or why it's missing. Um, So I'd be curious, you know, if you had a game that's like pretty fun to play, but was like sitting at like 30% day one retention, let's just say it's kind of like an Archero style hybrid casual game, just to give you like a perspective, you know, where would you take that and like how could you effectively learn like what isn't working about that game uh, how could you extract as much insight either to uh fix it and you know get the retention up to a point where it's worth scaling or to maximize the learning so that your next project you have a better chance of success it's it's hard to tell without without looking at the at actual data of course and then data yeah. would would would, would um probably reveal something. So it might be something banal, like um, uh, player putting too many steps before the player gets into, into, into the action. But what usually, in general, it happens to a lot of games is the, the, the gameplay is fun, but that lacks context. And uh, nowadays you really need, well, any activity, you need to provide a context for players to actually be doing the actions that they have. So the initial steps of the the first time user experience essentially need to create the emotional connection to to the game that you are trying to, for them to play. And too many first time user experiences go diving straight into into teaching players about gameplay and controls and, and, and that sort of stuff. That's all valid and it's probably necessary, 
but it's getting necessary less and less because you, you, you get people and generation of people that, 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 been playing, that have been playing games for a very long time. So they usually know the conventions of, 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 of gameplay. So you don't really need to fret about that that much unless you're introducing something really exotic and really new. And then, uh, you, but what what they kind of want is is a reason why would you would they play that particular game? Mm. And if you look at it, then self determination theory again helps with that, because again we go basic to uh, go to, to basic psychological needs. So one of the reasons why people play games is to fulfill those needs, and this is the autonomy, the the competence, and the relatedness, and especially autonomy and and, and competence play a part in, in, in the in the first part of the of the game because players want take control of the game as soon as possible. This is why so many people they say that they hate tutorials, that they hate intros, that they hate everything. But they actually just wanna wanna exert the action. So they want to control whatever is the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they also want to feel immediately competent in doing it. And they might not know know how to 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 do this. So what you need to do is create that sort of a user experience, basically where, where you kind of get them to experience some sort of control over the game as fast as possible and get them to, to do something meaningful and delightful that will kind of capture their attention as, as, as fast as possible. So this is where quite, kind of quite a lot of, of uh, FTUEs uh, tend, tend to fail. So they are probably putting too many steps in front of the player before player actually gets to, to do something that's that's meaningful. Mm. And the thing is uh, yeah, the, the, the key there is having a meaningful action. So it's not enough to let the player do something, whatever, but it needs to feel like conscious decision and the result of a, of a conscious effort. So players are really kind of like our subconscious is really good at seeing through uh, the artificial setup of okay just hit this ball and it will no matter what you do, go into a, a hole and you're done with the tutorial. No, they, they want to experience the actual gameplay. And this is probably, this is one thing that, that, that you kind of need to, to, to take a uh, take Also, the, the, the action needs to have consequences that feel meaningful. You need to produce a, a result that feels as actual gameplay. Mm-hmm. So that might be something to, to look at. Yeah, that's super interesting. Do you know any games that you feel like do a really good job of providing this context than getting the user into the action that actually has a meaningful outcome on that context if people, you know, want to experience what you're talking about? Well, there are kind of several, but they are usually the ones that, that also do very well in the market. Uh, Clash Royale is one of the example, examples of this. They, they kind of they, they have a little elaborate tutorial, but you get to see the results of your actions pretty pretty fast when you do. The other brilliant example is Subway Surfers. It's 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 kind of very it's already here for four years. It's also kind of a very very nice game. It practically doesn't have any 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 obstacles before you start playing. There's just a couple of steps there and bum you are in the action and it feels powerful and it feels meaningful and so on. So these do 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 a nice job. But also I mean uh, recently I tried to I started playing uh, it's not even a, a free to play game. It's a, it's a premium game. It's now in Apple Arcade uh, what a golf. 
which also starts with very kind of a uh, big tutorial. You basically start aim and shoot, and it kind of very nicely starts evolving or playing with the basic set of rules. Like, what are you actually shooting? Shooting like there, it's it's a brilliant, very 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 delightful game, and it does this kind of uh, introduction of what is game concepts in a very inobtrusive way. So it kind of gets gets you there, it gets you laughing in in first half a minute, and then there's that emotional connection. So you stay with it for for some time. I don't know how long it's going to retain you because it's particularly not a free to play game designed for that. But but uh, the the FTV was really nice in that. So I, I'm struggling a little bit with this idea of, of context and, and to, to frame where I'm coming from, when I think about context, I think about some of like my favorite books that are like fantasy style books or whatnot. And I feel like a lot of them, they spend one, maybe two, three, four chapters like just setting the tone of like what's been going on in this world. There's some mystery, there's some intrigue and all this stuff obviously we don't have that much time in the game to like set the context, but like, let's say in those two examples, what is the context in subway surfers and what is the context in, you know, clash Royale that actually makes it meaningful to the user. So the thing is, um, they both turn into, into players preconceptions, uh, that come from, from outside the game. They come from real life. So Subway Surfers goes through all these elaborate, so it's, it, it's an endless runner, but it's deliberately themed with a character that, that this graffiti artist runs over trains. So this is something that you've probably seen or, or heard about or maybe even experienced in the, in the, in the real life. And then the whole appearance of this, even the initial screen, kind of screams like that. So the choice of font, of colors, of the outfit that the character wears. So you get to, to, to absorb this practically immediately when you, when you get into the game. So this already uh, sets the tone and the setting of the game. The games here luxury uh, that they are very visual and they are also very kind of interactive. So uh, that kind of cuts short some of the some of the stuff. Um, so it's, it's basically a shortcut. Clash Royale also uses that shortcut and uh, it, it, it's actually twofold. So one is the, the whole fantasy world with all, with all the fantasy conventions. Uh, so you know how the giant is going to behave. You know how a dragon, that the dragon is going to shoot fireballs no matter what uh, in, in, in game. Immediately when you see, uh, you you uh, know how an archer is going to behave in, in, in certain games. So you don't really need to explain all those things uh, to a player. On top of that, it was built based on the characters that existed in a previous game. So it kind of served as a, as a springboard there. So it, it jumps over this. It, it come, comes with pre-built context in, in, in a certain way. And it goes there. Uh, this is also one, one, one of the reasons why sci-fi games don't necessarily do as well as, uh, let's say, fantasy games, because the mm-hmm. vocabulary in fantasy games is much more established. So mm-hmm. the shared knowledge that people have how a fantasy world should, should work, it's so much shaped by big talking stuff and, and, and everything else that we all have this shared vocabulary. So we know what uh, uh, what an elf does, what a dwarf does, what the giant would be doing, and so on. And then you can extrapolate from that. 
while in, in sci-fi world, uh, there's much less established conventions. So it's kind of harder to, to, to come up with, uh, with these this shortcuts. So you need more time to establish the context. And uh, this is more difficult. It's also one of the things like why most of the crafting games revolve around farm building and, and cooking and crafting. Also, because mm-hmm. people know what are the ingredients of a, of, a, I don't know, of a hamburger or what to expect that goes into a muffin. Because obviously, it's, it's going to be flour and, 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 and eggs and milk and sugar and that sort of stuff. So you don't need to explain that, again, you are now crafting a, a warp engine and you need the lithium, crystal, the lithium crystals and you need the, <laughs> this antimatter core and, uh, and this circuit and that circuit. So, yeah, it, it's simply some things are uh, uh, a bit the uh, concepts that are easy, all, all, already familiar to players. So, so it goes, goes like that. Yeah. This helps a lot if you're designing. That makes a lot of sense. It kind of feels like we're referencing some stuff from, I've got the, a copy of The Gamer's Brain by uh, uh, Celia Hodent here. Um, and I mm-hmm. feel like she's gone into a lot of those things of, forget what the general premise is, but it's like, if you can make things that intuitively flow through to real world so that the player's expectations meet the reality, their attention can be on the things in the game that you actually want them to be on. So like, you know, I I know some people struggle with some of those merge games where they have kind of illogical merge combinations where two of these things turn into something else and it just doesn't really make sense but if you have more logical merge where it's like you know two glasses of water become like a pitcher of water like that just makes a little bit more sense and the player can focus less on trying to remember how to get this thing that i'm trying to merge to and doing the you know core part of the game or whatnot um yeah super so Okay, I think I think I understand the context a little bit better. So, um, thinking about the types of things and the art form and how I'm using those things can actually have a really big impact on that context and kind of playing it. Um, final question about context before I <laughs> let that one go: um, Have you played Genshin Impact at all? Uh, I started playing it. They didn't get get too much into. <laughs> yeah. Well. In the very beginning, they kind of start with a, a fairly long um, prologue. It's very, you know, beautiful, and they like give some overview stuff. I think they probably could have done more, but like, do you feel like that type of a thing helps set the context for Genshin Impact of like how they arrived, where they're at, and what they actually have to go and do, which is, you know, go and find their sister or brother or whatnot um do you think having some sort of goal pre-established in the game uh that the player can then like work towards as they start doing the actions right away is a good way to you know drive that early first time user experience retention type stuff well absolutely i mean you you start start of the first time user experience kind of like uh uh, start of hero's journey in a in a, in a movie or in a, in, a, in an app, and that always starts with with uh, with a basic premise where you kind of have this overarching goal or a huge mission. In in case of games, this is your aspirational goal in a way, and uh, so you kind of need to, to provide it. But in, in many su- successful games, you 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 see it 
done in that way. Like in, in Super Mario, obviously, you are going to save the princess, and that's the and that's the the mission that you are on, and that helps set the tone. In Genshin Impact, they, they, they go with a very elaborate intro. Uh, it works for them, obviously, because the game is doing, doing really, really great, and there are people that really love that sort of stuff. I personally got a little bit lost in it, because I'm not the type of player that is necessarily kind of gravitating toward that. Mm-hmm. Um, but what it does, it, it, it does exactly exactly this. So it establishes the, the, the basic conventions of development and kind of like this overarching goal. The same thing is that on, on, on the opposite end of the spectrum, you can do the same thing in a way, but with, um, with much more minimalistic uh, set of tools. Bubble Double and the title game from, from, from eight is that basically had three sentences in the intro. And this is a, uh, let's go into a cave of monsters. This is a beginning of a fantastic journey. And that's it. And instead, uh, kind of sets, sets the tone and the setting in, in, in that. And this is kind of an ultra minimalistic way of doing things. And it was also doing quite, quite, quite well. The other thing is you do this elaborate mix of, 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 of a story and so on. There's space for both, but the, the idea is the same, kind of like that. You, you establish this long-term goal the player tries to, to achieve eventually. Mm. That's super interesting. Okay, I like that. Um, one of your articles that we, or that I read recently was, um, it was the one about soul in gameplay. And I wonder how much this kind of applies to this concept of uh context here um and as i was like reading through it and and reading through the white paper uh you kind of talked about this idea of a mood board where essentially you kind of before you even really get into core gameplay and all that kind of stuff you kind of say like what like mood am i trying to elicit in this gameplay is it a feeling of coziness is it a feeling of creepiness um and then, you know, what is the art style? What are the types of features? What are the types of things that we could do that would bring about more of this mood that we're trying to, you know, capitalize on? Um, do you feel like that's like a good way to also help approach that type of context or is the context kind of built in into that idea behind the scenes? So. Yeah, it's it's exactly. It's kind of something that, that I'm still learning about, and I'm really fascinated fascinated about that approach. Because when you're doing the uh, free-to-play uh, mobile games, quite often you, you tend to focus, and I come from that world, I used to focus on systems, and you craft these systems and these loops, and, and you have the diagrams, and you plot out the, the economy and resources and whatnot, and it's kind of like beautifully crafted it's might become quite quickly soulless if you don't think about the the mood in the setting and this is again all about providing a context for players why should he be doing certain type of actions so i think the, the great way to, to 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 do is to actually combine the two things so you do your maths you do do your diagrams and the system design on one side but you also start to think like what is the um, maybe not the story because I don't like to think in terms of, of story in, in, in sentences or, or that, but like what are the small elements that I can arrange to create the feeling 
uh, that will captivate the players and provide the the, the, the emotions that, that actually create the soul around the skeleton of, of diagrams that I have in the uh, on the other hand that I kind of how I want to, to for the game to, to work. And really the key thing there is you you, you need to think about it uh, essentially as a multiplayer and, and and the canvas that you are painting painting with the with the, with emotions. Uh, the thing there is they don't need to be really huge things, but kind of small elements, small details that can, again, uh, in combination or aggregate, create the picture that you, you, you are making. And this is uh, something that we are actually, you know, especially in AAA games, uh, it works very good, well, but also in movies and in books. Uh, small elements, sound elements, Iconic uh, locations, items that are placed here and there. Everything influences the, the, the player, and it can help create this coherent picture and and, and essentially the context that we are talking about. Yeah. Do you think having those conversations, like in the beginning, we kind of talked about this idea of like a target audience for you know a certain prototype or talking to them beforehand. Do you think? the desire of the players or the problems that they have should have an influence on this move board? Um, it's it's kind of good both, both ways. I mean, you as an author or as a creative game might want to decide to capture a particular feeling and convey it to the player. That also needs to play into a sort of audience that you want, yeah. to, want to have. Because you would probably have a different demographic gravitating towards, I don't know, a uh, 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 sort of a slasher, gore <laughs> kind of uh, setting versus the sort of demographics that would go, as we said, into a fluffy and cozy type of game. Mm-hmm. But on, uh, in general, people can get surprised. But also, it's 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 not that hard set in stone like people would seek different kinds of uh entertainment in different uh, times so you, you watch also comedies you watch horror movies you watch sci-fi depending on the mood you are uh, but then if the if the game knows what it's showing then 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 there is yeah. uh is that so you kind of cool that's great well this has been super awesome i only have one more question for you and that is the unofficial question that I like to ask everyone because it is mastering attention. Um, and that is, you know, what's one tip or trick or um, lesson you've learned over the years to help increase retention? You know, how do you answer that ever burning question of how do I keep more players around for longer? Uh, you have a clear line of progression so that they can see it and they know what's the what's the next goal then they can choose the next goal in, in a way if if if, it, if we don't kind of be, be disregarding about anything anything else that's uh, that's here like about the mood and the context and so on if we kind of like think purely on the mechanic like give them a clear set of goals to to try to reach at least uh, a good chunk of players will 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 start filling in People like to complete stuff, so they they, they like to, to to climb ladders. They like to unlock gears and so on. So just give them a clear line of progression. It's kind of the wonders. 
I like that clear, basic, and just makes sense. <laughs> Love it. Well, Stanislav, this has been so great. Really appreciate you uh, joining us today. Um, if people do have any questions about anything, is there a good spot for them to reach out to at? Uh, LinkedIn is the big basic spot where they can find me. All right. Well, thank you so much. Hope you have a great rest of your night and we'll talk soon.